0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome
1: to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
2: Thank goodness, only 48 hours to go until we know the result of this general election. And then phase two can begin the coalition and hung parliament negotiations. If you thought you were going to have the end of politics, think again. But with two days to go, I've assembled a great cast of Times columnists, Matthew Paris, Melanie Phillips and Jenny Russell. And here are our topics for today. Ed
3: Miliband has promised no deal with Nicola Sturgeon, but there doesn't have to be a formal pact. If the SNP achieves its threatened clean sweep of Scottish seats, it will dictate not just Labour's but the Conservatives' agenda. Resisting the SNP's core aim to break up the United Kingdom would take unusual principle and courage by Messrs Miliband and Cameron, which few surely would believe of either man.
4: The Conservatives are promising £12 billion in welfare cuts, but they won't tell us where £10 billion of those cuts will fall. There are only two explanations for this. Either the cuts will be so unfair and politically toxic that the Tories don't dare to admit to them before an election, or they're a mirage, so damaging to implement that the Tories actually plan to raise the money through unacknowledged tax rises instead. We're being played for fools.
1: There's just time for David Cameron to do what Ed Miliband dare not confirm, that if he wins, but without an overall majority, he'd talk to all the other parties about the contents of the first Queen's speech. He'd have to. Everyone knows the Lib Dems would be his first call, and it isn't as if the idea of a
2: Tory Lib Dem accommodation would be unpopular with the voters. So Melanie, let's start with your topic and start with the topic that really has been dominating this campaign, which is the possibility of the SNP getting, if not a clean sweep in Scotland, but nearly a clean sweep. And as far as you're concerned, forget the debates about pledges carved on headstones and all the other nonsense that we've had in this campaign. The possibility of the SNP holding the balance of power in the next government, in the next parliament, is the decisive thing and you are not optimistic that either Ed Miliband or David Cameron realises quite what that threat will mean.
3: I think it's uh, a great express train coming thundering down the tracks at us because it's not as if the SNP are just another party uh, with a particular point of view as far as governing the United Kingdom is concerned. This party wants to destroy the United Kingdom. And it is a very difficult situation because on the one hand, you know, the Scots will have spoken. They will have elected on this assumption... Uh, the vast majority of Scottish seats will fall to the SNP, a nationalist separatist uh, organisation. Scotland, however, is part of the United Kingdom. Those Scottish people have a have a, have a right uh, to be represented in Parliament uh, because it is a national kingdom. But if you have part of the national kingdom voting basically uh, in a party uh, which intends to break up the national kingdom, then it becomes an extraordinarily difficult situation. Mm. Personally, I think the only principled position for either... Uh, Labour or the Conservatives should they find themselves in this position is to try and go it alone as a minority government Uh, because any kind of deal with the Scottish nationalists will put either Labour or the Conservatives at the mercy of a party which has one aim only which is to break
2: up the kingdom. If we were to ignore the English people where there were English parties were to ignore the verdict of the Scottish people though, wouldn't we just be encouraging more nationalism if they elected MPs and we said we're not going to allow you to be decisive in any in any way in our parliament?
3: Uh, they are entitled to elect their members of parliament um, who will be represented in Westminster. They are not entitled to dictate a government. People famously, uh, constitutionally, do not elect a government. They elect a constituency member Mm. of parliament. And it is entirely within the rights of any political party to resist going into alliance or coalition or doing deals with whatever party it thinks it should not do such deals with. There's nothing uh, to make it
1: do so. But it's entirely within the rights of any political party say, the SNP, say, with 50 seats, uh, not to vote for legislation with which they don't agree?
3: Absolutely, but what I'm saying is that a minority government, uh, that the the Conservatives or Labour should try to uh, form a minority government, try to struggle through a minority government. With all that entailed, I'm not suggesting for a moment it would be pretty or or, um, a happy outcome, but they would be basically facing down the SNP and daring it to vote them out, and would, you prefer a grand, would you
2: prefer a grand coalition of Labour and Conservatives rather than a Labour SNP arrangement?
3: Um, I suspect yes. seems the S- highly unlikely, that sort no, of coalition. No, but would you prefer it? Uh, yes, because basically um, Labour and the Conservatives together, although um, one can't really see that working for obvious reasons because of the profound differences between them, but basically they are united in... Uh, attempting to form a government of the United Kingdom. Mm.
2: It would be a a wonderful uh, opportunity for extreme parties, though, if you had Labour and Conservatives cooperating. Jenny Russell.
4: I was very worried for a long time about the SNP, but um, I'm now less worried. And I think that the point that you raised him about the illegitimacy of excluding the Scots and their representatives from decision-making is a really profound one. I think if you're going to drive and the end of the United Kingdom, if that's what you fear, there's no faster way of doing it than saying to the Scots, no matter what you say, you can have no influence on what happens at Westminster. I think in the new multi-party politics, it's absolutely right and proper that Scotland's representatives should have a voice if there's no majority government. And they ought to be able to say to the majority party, well, these are the things that the Scots want, and this is what we're going to argue for. And what makes me a lot less worried than I was is that um, I hear from inside the SNP that um, they've been to Canada, and they've heard from the Quebecois about the dangers of a hasty second referendum. Mm. And what they've been told by the Canadians is that you would be absolutely mad to rush into a second referendum, which you would lose. And so if you do want independence for Scotland, in the end of this process which by no means everybody in the SNP actually wants it's a very very long game you're talking about at least 10 years here. So if the SNP arrive at Westminster, what they are not trying to do is to hasten the end of the United Kingdom immediately. I don't believe they're arriving just to be abstracted. The,
2: their aims are more to slow austerity, to pull Britain towards the left, exactly. to cancel or, Trident. So it's a much all, all more. All those things
4: are legitimate aims for any political party in the United Kingdom. And if no party has been given a majority, then it's the right thing to do that you have, just as the Tories and Lib Dems do, to arrive at an accommodation where we say we do some things that you want and some things that we want because if you don't get a majority verdict that's what has to happen that's what democratic politics is
2: and what's the mood in the in the labour party jenny we've had a couple of stories in the times suggesting that some unnamed labour people are worried that labour itself would suffer if it got into bed with the SNP and that yes it would be a government that potentially could command a majority in the House of Commons but it would be seen by a lot of people especially in England and Wales as an illegitimate government there would be a government of the losers if you like with David Cameron potentially getting that, most I'm votes most that, seats I'm afraid but that's
4: just constitutionally nonsense I mean the, the, the government of the country is decided by the assembly of parties who can together command a majority in the Commons and it's complete nonsense in an era in which we've got a lot of little parties and in which one party cannot command an overall majority, to say that the party that comes second shouldn't be part of, in this case, an anti Tory majority. Yes,
2: there, there, there's a difference, though, between constitutional legitimacy and something that people as voters would accept as legitimate. But the is
4: if we're in a new era of multi party politics and you don't have one party with a majority over all the rest, then you are in a completely new situation which we're unaccustomed to dealing with. Of course, if it were just the first party and the second party and the second party had lost, then they couldn't form a government. Mm. But that is no, no, no longer the case. People aren't voting in a binary fashion for either Labour or Tory.
1: Yeah, but, but Tim's question isn't really the... on the constitutional issue where you must be correct, but how people would see it. And I think if the Labour Party did seem to be too much enthralled to the SNP, that would be bad for the Labour Party. But I don't know that they have to. I think there is a way through. Obviously, if the SNP have a massive victory, either party and government, Conservatives or Labour, would have to accelerate through really... Fulsome kind of Devo Max, and, and if that doesn't satisfy the Scots, they'll just have to have another
2: referendum. And, and, and Devo Max potentially want. for England as well. Well, um, that would have to come. Matthew, too, yes. you have yes. spoken about yeah. um, England close to inevitable. Re- yeah,
3: but I think that's a really reprehensible uh, development. I mean, I think this has been almost inevitable since devolution. Um, this ratchet effect, and I can see, you know, English nationalism growing, and it gives me no absolute pleasure at all. Uh, to see English nationalism growing because um, either way, Scotland seceding England on the rampage, this is a formula for the breakup of the United
2: Kingdom. And federalism, could the UK survive as a federal state?
3: Yeah. It, anything can survive as anything, potentially, but it will no longer be the Britain that we know. It will no longer be the United Kingdom. And if you think that, you know, a thousand years of history can just be you know, shoved down the pan without the It's not a thousand
1: years. It's about 200 years. It's 300.
3: 300. <laughs>
4: What's a century between
3: journalists? Well, it depends where you're where where you're starting from. But I am looking at the culture of a united country. You know, Scotland uh, and England were united much later than that. But I think that one is losing uh, the notion, uh, which is an ancient notion, on which um, an entire culture has been based, uh, an entire democratic polity has been built on that culture these things are kind of, you know, in in sort of, uh, in like sort of Russian dolls, Um, it's one thing within another. To mix my metaphor completely if you start sort of uh, disassembling uh, these uh, structures, then you're going to find that this is no longer Britain. I mean, okay.
4: Know, okay, multi-
2: okay. Um, we, we, just before we move on, Jenny, you, your final word on this topic.
4: Well, I entirely agree that I want the United Kingdom to stay united, but I think one of the ways of doing that is to be less hysterical about yes. wh- about what Scotland wants and to talk less about its dangers and to be warmer and more welcoming towards it. And I don't think we'd be in quite this position if David Cameron hadn't stood up on Friday morning outside Downing Street after the referendum and immediately tied the promises made to scotland about more um, greater independence within the union to english votes for, being, for english laws i think I english entirely. politicians are quite a lot to blame for for, the, for this level of um, anxiety mm. about the breakup and i think they should be mm. ratcheting back their rhetoric and trying to make the scots feel included within the union rather than talking about how dangerous they are
2: i suspect we will come back to this topic after thursday but Jenny, one topic that you want to raise is the issue of welfare cuts. The <coughs> Tories have identified, or not identified, <laughs> um, a total of £12 billion of welfare cuts that are necessary to bring the budget back towards balance. And um, I think they've identified one to £2 billion cut so far in terms of a squeeze on tax credits depending on how you measure inflation and you think there's a dishonesty here.
4: Well there clearly is a total dishonesty here and as it happens I was on a television programme last night with George Osborne taxing him on this and unsurprisingly yet again resolutely dodged giving any detail. This was
2: the agenda on Monday night on ITV. Yeah,
4: That's right um, but what's so interesting about this is that these numbers are so huge that we all tend to forget what they mean but just to
3: get the
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
4: In perspective, over this entire parliament, the Tories made about £18 billion pounds of welfare cuts. So that's in five years. Mm. and it's judged by all the experts that those were the easy cuts, those were the things like the popular benefits cap for £26,000 per family and refusing to uprate benefits in line with inflation. There are no easy cuts left in terms of um, how you target people who you want to push into work, for instance. These cuts will hit people like carers who are looking after their disabled or sick relatives. They'll mean taxing... Um, job well, they might. Allowed. The thing is, we well, don't know,
2: do we? Exa- well, well who, we don't who, who, know, who, who, but, 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 but when Institute mean, yeah.
4: for Fiscal Studies looks at these big benefits and says you've got to be hitting housing benefit, which goes to lots of low-paid families, you're going to be hitting and, and taxing disability benefits, or you're going to be hugely restricting child benefit. Now, the th- thing about this is that Obviously, the Tories aren't saying this because it's politically toxic. So either they plan to do something which they daren't admit to before the election, or, as some Lib Dems believe, they have no intention of implementing these cuts at all because they would be so damaging to the kinds of hard-working, striving people that the Tories have tried to encourage. But that, in fact, what they're going to bring in are tax cuts to make... are tax increases to make up the difference, and they daren't admit to those before an election either.
1: Maybe they just haven't made up their minds.
4: Well, that's plausible, but then in that case, don't say to the public we're going to cut welfare further knowing that that's a popular sentence because by that the public hears you're going to hit the people who don't want to work when, in fact, you mean something entirely different. If you, Matthew, lose your job, you'll no longer be entitled to the job seekers allowance for which you have paid all these years. You'll get nothing on the basis that your household income is sufficiently high
2: already. And I can confirm at this point there is no likelihood of Matthew Parris losing his job at the Not time. Not at
3: all. <laughs> But isn't it going to be actually more of the same old, same old, usual muddle? I mean, there will be some uh, cuts in public expenditure, probably worse than there have been, so there'll be some squeals of anguish. There'll be some tax rises... carefully concealed uh, to pretend that they are not. And there'll be more borrowing uh, carefully concealed to pretend that we're cutting the deficit. In other words, it'll be more of the same slate of hand, uh, hall of mirrors stuff, and they'll be squealing and everyone will be squealing uh, for uh, tax c- for, for public expenditure cuts which aren't as bad as they might have been. Um, and it will all be the same old muddle and we mm. will not be actually doing our economy any good at all by all this. And if,
2: and if it is a Liberal Democrat Conservative arrangement, the Liberal Democrats will be blaming the Tories for the welfare cuts and the Tories will be blaming the Liberal Democrats for having to increase council tax or something well, of that ex- order.
4: Exactly. Oh, oh, are we just involved in deep cynicism here? Yeah.
0: Saying, yes, 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 we are. I cynicism or realism. Then why perhaps. are
4: we bothering to discuss their election manifestos at all? I mean, I do think well, if they're telling us. I couldn't agree more. I
3: haven't read any of them. <laughs> but if, if, this
4: is is, is the ground on which we stand this is what we're going to do but we refuse to tell you how we're going to do it then why don't we just turn off the um, monitors not not podcast on the election and just wait to see what the result is Matthew what do you think well I think
1: it's funny how people discuss what politicians are and 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 might do and might be in complete isolation from what they and their own families are and might do and might be and all of us in in our everyday lives are perfectly familiar with making general principle decisions about the future but deciding to leave the detailed implementation to the future. We're we're all familiar with asking our mums and dads to tell us what we were going to do and mummy or daddy saying, well, we haven't made up our minds yet, we won't tell you. (laughs) Life is like that. People don't make up their minds, they have to muddle along as circumstances dictate. We all know a Conservative government would try to get spending down quite sharply. Exactly where we don't know uh, yet. And as Melanie says, they probably wouldn't do as as much as they say, but they they do
4: more than nothing. But I I have to say, although I, like every proper journalist, can be very cynical or sceptical about politicians, I care about whether you're going to raise the £10 billion by taxing... People who are wealthy and can afford it, or whether you're going to tax people who are struggling along at the bottom. That's why it really matters to but, me. But, to but we know what we can't get £10 billion
1: pounds by taxing the wealthy, so we know that uh, other well, people Labour, will have But
4: Labour, to... Labour th- are pretty clear that they can. Well,
2: well they they're can. Clear. Clear. They're, <laughs> they're not telling the truth. Crowns listeners. Just before we now. Move, move on, though, <laughs> Matthew, would you agree, though, that this welfare issue has been a little bit of a strategic mistake by the Tories because welfare reform has been one of the Conservative-led government's most popular um, initiatives of the last five years and they've not really been able to talk about it because they know as soon as they start talking about welfare the sort of questions that Jenny has asked us to focus on will be raised.
1: I don't think it's a strategic mistake, it's a philosophical inevitability. The kind of Party the Conservatives want to be, and the sort of things they want to do are not going to be possible with without some serious reductions in welfare yes. spending, and and there's no way they can get out of talking about that.
2: Okay. Well, your your topic for us, um, Matthew, is you actually want um, David Cameron in the last 48 hours or so before polling stations close to talk about the options he has for yes. working with other political parties. So you want to turn the normal political behaviour on its head. Yes. And him for him to start saying, these are my options. I,
1: well, I thought that BBC uh, D- Dimbleby question time was quite revealing. The irritation of the audience that neither party leader would admit that they might not get an overall majority and talk about the circumstances. And I, I think everyone knows that it isn't the likelihood that Conservatives are going to get an overall majority. Everyone knows that they would like to make some kind of arra- arrangement, probably with the Liberal Democrats. I'm not suggesting that David Cameron declares that he he will be wooing the Lib Dems for a coalition, but I think in his language he could just make it clear that, yes, he will do, as he said, the right thing, and that would probably involve, he should say, talking to all the parties, because we all know the Liberal Democrats would be his first call.
4: Mm. Why do you think that would be such a good thing, Matthew? In what way would that help him or the voters? I'm the voters
1: like coalition. All, all, all the polling suggests. I think more voters prefer a co- conservative liberal democrat coalition to a, a government by the Conservatives. Yes, you're,
4: you're, you're right, that is what the polls show. that if people could vote for the coalition mm. most people well, would.
2: Well, Lots of newspapers are, if you look at endorsements whether it's the Financial Times or the Economist or the Independent, they're saying Vote for the continuation of, of the course, coalition there, there's by no, voting there's no box for Conservative coalition. or Liberal Democrats. The... But M- M- Matthew, the problem with your idea, though, is surely it will invite just another second round of questions. Once he's opened up um, this possibility, people will say, OK, so what are you willing to trade away? What in your manifesto are you most willing to give up? So
1: this might be the right point in the campaign to do it quite close to the end before we... <laughs> <laughs>
4: Welfare cuts, for instance, the Lib Dems don't think he's going to implement those. Well, no. <laughs>
2: Mel- Melanie, what's your view of um, Matthew's idea? Would you, well, if you were in, sat in Tory HQ, would you take his advice?
3: I think it's quite difficult. I mean, I have some sympathy with what Matthew is saying. And I do think that people like coalitions, much to my dismay, because I believe in strong government, uh, which can be voted out and on, so on and so forth. Um, but I, I think, think the real difficulty but I think the real difficulty well, not if it's a coalition it's much more difficult to vote out a, a particular set mm-hmm. of, of 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 policies, but I think the real difficulty is you know here is the Conservative Party, which has put forward a manifesto despite our cynicism on this side of the table anyway that is the, these are the policies that they are putting to the to the electorate. this is what we are going to do, and if they start saying, well, actually. Uh, we're actually going to go into coalition with either with 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 anybody. Well, then it begs it it it, it brings into question. You know, as you say, uh, Tim, what policies they're going to trade off. In other words, the the electorate can turn around and say, well. The manifesto is clearly worth nothing, so we have Mm. no idea what we're voting for. When we vote for Mr Cameron, are we voting for a Lib Dem coalition, an SNP coalition, a Labour... I mean, we have no idea what we're voting for. Yeah, but the voters
1: are more grown up than that. Yeah, We would know that we were voting for, for circumstances in which there would have to be negotiations. Well,
3: the voters are very grown up, and consequently, I'm sure that most voters ignore what politicians are saying from the start. Um, and they're making up their own minds on the basis of something quite different. Like, mm. you know, do yeah. I like the cut of his or her jib? Is that kind mm. of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, do I put my finger up to the wind and, you know, see which, which, which way it's blowing? Well, um, but nevertheless, the constitutional fiction, if you like, is that here, are, here's a, here is a party putting forward a raft of policies called a manifesto. And if one is saying, well, actually, it's not worth anything, If if one is saying, actually, I'm going to go into coalition, then one's saying it's not worth anything.
4: Oh, I don't agree at all. I mean, I'm with with Matthew on this. You're setting out a whole lot of aspirations as a party. You're saying, if I was in power and if we had um, complete freedom, this is what we would do. But we know now that the whole landscape is changing and no one is Mm. going to be given that mandate. And so you have a set of things mm. for which a party would aim okay. and then you know that they would be amended by circumstance. Well
3: yes but you know hypothetical aspirations don't really take you very far if you are yes, standing in the in the polling well, booth very wondering where to place your cross. Well
4: they're very different if you're Tory if you're a Tory man Tory aspirations are very different from Labour man, uh, aspirations and they're different from Liberal No ones. but
3: aspirations of a hypothetical kind as opposed to aspirations of uh, a kind which are, are this is what we are going to be doing if we gain power. That's what a voter needs to know, sure. No, we?
1: Uh, I think everybody, or almost everybody, uh, voting this, this Thursday is, is going to be voting for a party whose overall philosophy and direction they have a pretty good idea of. They they aren't familiar with the manifesto, they aren't familiar with the details, they aren't confident that either party could stick to all the things that it says, but they know what sort of an animal the Labour Party is and what sort of an animal mm. the Conservative Party is. Mm. Okay, so,
2: we, we are going to have to wrap up in a minute, but I just wanted to end by, Matthew, you began this campaign mm. with an article in the paper in which you felt, in your bones, you didn't have proof, but you thought somehow David Cameron would get over the over the line. Are you are you still optimistic?
1: I still think that he's going to do a lot better than everybody says. But I don't think, and I, I didn't even say then, that, that I thought the Conservative Party would get an
2: absolute majority. No, no. OK, but he will remain Prime Minister. Do you think that's still likely? On balance, yes. Yeah. Jenny?
4: Curiously enough, I think Matthew may be right. I was talking to a couple of senior Conservatives last night, very much off the record, away from all this nonsense about, oh, we're aiming for a majority. They were saying, very thoughtfully, we think we're going to get between 290 and 300. And that was an honest assessment. Mm. And they just say things seem to be turning their way. Now, maybe everyone's just deluded. But um, I, Ma- Matthew could be right. I don't and think the, it's the mood it, in it the, at all. And
2: the mood in the Labour Party?
4: Labour Party...
2: Melanie?
3: I think uh, Cameron
2: will just squeak it. Yeah. Okay. well, three votes for David Cameron staying as Prime Minister. Thank you, Matthew, Melanie, Jenny, very much for joining me. Thanks to Dave Maguire, producer. We will be back on Friday when we may have an election result, or we may not. And can I invite all Times Plus members, we are recording a live edition of this podcast next Tuesday, May the 12th, to discuss the results of the general election. If you'd like to be part of that audience, head to mytimesplus.co.uk slash podcast. And for just £5, you can be there for our post-election podcast. I shall post some background reading articles at the thetimes.co.uk/commentcentral for time subscribers until friday. goodbye. thank you for
1: downloading. to discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
0: this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by luton rising, owners of london luton airport, the uk's most socially impactful airport. find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.